You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And just like that, we were back. Yet another week. It is the Late Kick Extra podcast. I'm Josh Pate. We got a jam-packed show. I'm wasting no time getting into this. I'm recording early Wednesday morning. And already, even really before a lot of people have had breakfast, myself included, we have got things moving. We've got smoke, shall we say, out there on the landscape of college football. So we'll dive right into that. First, housekeeping note, big news here. We're sitting at 419 five-star reviews for this podcast in Apple Podcasts as I record on Wednesday morning. I'm just going to put it to you like this. When we get to 500, we are adding a third episode per week of Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. And for those of you who prefer the podcast method, we are also adding a second episode per week of the podcast you're listening to right now, Late Kick Extra. So a lot of you have asked me, Hey, could you give us more? A lot of you love listening on your drive home and you run out of inventory too early in the week. A lot of you love listening as you mow your grass and the grass grows too quick and you run out of stuff to listen to on your second trip around the lawn per week. A lot of you are long haul truck drivers and you listen when you cross the country and I can't even get you across Oklahoma right now. Well, hey, the way to get more is to give us those five-star reviews. I appreciate so much that you've gotten us to where we are already because we started this podcast from scratch just a few months ago. So the traction you've already gotten us is really incredible. Get us to 500 five-star reviews, and I'm giving you a whole lot more. So as I said on Twitter the other day, and as Grandma Pate used to say, my balls are in your court. Let's make it happen. This is full mailbag format, Q&A, at Late Kick Josh on Twitter if you want to get at me there. JoshPate706 at gmail.com if you want to email. Or you can watch Late Kick Live on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. There is a pinned comment under every episode where you can submit questions for this podcast that we do right now once a week, but we could soon be moving to two days a week. We'll see. Dot, dot, dot. So there's a lot going on, as I hinted at this morning already as I record Wednesday morning, and I want to waste no time. Let's dive right into this. Jessica leads us off. Jessica asked, how do you explain the past week in the Big Ten? It's a conference that normally has its act together. Can you give me any hope about the prospects of a season still happening? What about the protests of the players and the parents and some head coaches in the conference? Could that change the Big Ten's mind? Jessica, let's unpack this. It's been such an unprecedented week on so many levels. As I tweeted yesterday at Late Kick Josh, it is impossible to even fathom that the Big Ten postponed its season abruptly six days after they released the schedule, but they did. So let's waste no more time recapping that. Here is the inexplicable part that followed. Somehow, that was Tuesday of last week when that decision was made, and yet Tuesday, which was yesterday as I record this morning, we had even less transparency a week later than we did when the decision was made. Have you seen uh, Big Ten dignitaries? Have you seen university presidents, Kevin Warren? Have you seen them readily making themselves available to media? Have you seen them answering questions? I haven't seen any of this, and I'm in this business where I'm paid to see it, and I haven't seen it. So if I haven't, I really don't think you guys have. That part is inexplicable, and the demand for confidentiality and cloaking all this in secrecy, it's like you're working 
at Area 51 or NASA, or we're talking about a cure for cancer being developed. This is a college football season that you have canceled, and you are very accountable to the players, and I'm going to tell you this right now, you're very accountable to the fans. The game doesn't exist without them. This game does not exist without you. It's the player's game, but it's also the fan's game. And to not even be giving answers is pretty inexplicable. But then, just as you talk about how inexplicable that is, and you ask, how could this be? Why would this happen? Why would we not be hearing from anyone? Just as soon as that happens, Jeff Snook, some of you are familiar with that name, many more are not, a pretty reliable source out of the Big Ten. He's a guy who's been ahead of a number of stories, not even on Twitter. I think he's very active on Facebook. But Jeff Snook last night, and I woke up to this this morning, full transparency, threw something out there, and he just let it marinate. And he said, it may not be over yet. We may have a situation where Ohio State has been working behind the scenes in conjunction with the likes of Iowa and Penn State and Nebraska, toss Wisconsin, Michigan in there, maybe one more, to get a season off the ground where you have maybe six teams that are active in the Big Ten, play each other twice. He threw out some scheduling formats. I don't know of the validity, and when I say validity, I don't know whether it'll happen. But I do think what Jeff Snook is saying is valid, because if you'll think along with me here, It almost makes more sense in explaining the past week. Why else would you have virtual and complete silence from a conference that's normally so at the forefront of messaging and so at the forefront of avoiding taking nasty PR hits? You could chalk it up to maybe ineptitude from a new conference commissioner. Kevin Warren is relatively new, and I guess you could explain it away like that. But this is not a conference with one guy at the helm, one guy with his hands on the wheel and no one else giving any guidance. So I don't find that to be as believable. What I think is probably more believable is that even as the conference announced the season was over, at least for the fall, I think a lot of people behind the scenes said, no, this season is not over. Let's see what we can do. Let's take matters into our own hands. Think about Nebraska. Nebraska, Scott Frost, they were very forceful as the league decision came down and saying, oh, forget that. We're going to go out on our own. We're going to see if we can go at this on our own. And then that kind of got shut down pretty quick. And Scott Frost didn't say much else, did he? And there was some talk from Ohio State behind the scenes and kind of publicly about maybe seeking alternate methods to play some games this year. And then all of a sudden, Gene Smith kind of shut that down. And then you didn't hear anything else, did you? But yet if you look on Twitter and you look at Ryan Day, And Mark Pantone, a bunch of the guys that are front-facing representatives of the Ohio State football program, they haven't stopped there. Justin Fields releases his petition trying to get the season overturned and the decision overturned. They've been very supportive there. I think I have not had a day go by where I haven't had Ryan Day on Twitter tweeting the word FIGHT in all caps. You think they're just talking about the 2021 spring season? I don't. I think there have been a lot of wheels turning behind the scenes. Now, my fingers are crossed, as are yours, regardless of where you live in this country, that this does happen and that they're able to get a season off the ground. So, Jessica, that, I think, may go a long way in explaining what you're asking to be explained. The silence and how discombobulated things look in this situation, how it's been mismanaged, and it has, regardless of the outcome in the Big Ten, 
I think it may be because the situation is not quite as done and the door isn't quite as closed as we think it is. Now, having said that, I have no clue whether anything's going to pan out from this or not. I just hope that it does. Next up is Oscar. I'm a new fan of the show. I'm a Miami fan. I watch all the videos. Do you think the Big 12, ACC, and SEC successfully get the season off the ground? And if they do, is there a chance that the Big 10 and Pac-12 join in on the season? Oscar, if you're asking, do they join in after the season has been gotten off the ground? No, I don't believe that. I think it's get it off the ground around the same start time as the other big boys or wait to the spring. And the waiting to the spring, I kind of put with an asterisk next to it in terms of a statement because I don't really think it's going to happen. And I think if you do have a spring product, for many reasons that we've discussed already and probably don't need to be discussed again, I just don't think it's legitimate. I don't think you have the star players playing. I don't think that you have any kind of reasonable way to structure the 2021 full schedule. And when I say schedule, I mean spring, summer, fall, winter, like the entire calendar for the year. I don't think there's any kind of viable way to do that. So they better get it off the ground if they are going to around the same time that the other conferences get it off the ground if and when they do get their seasons off the ground. David, up next. If you could pick any two blue blood schools to have a yearly home and home rivalry, which two schools would you choose? David, my answer here is Ohio State versus Alabama. Big 10 and the best of the best from there versus the SEC and the best of the best from there when you're talking about longer form, when you're talking about bigger picture. Yes, LSU won the national title last year. Yes, any given year, Georgia is right there in the mix. And for the record, I wouldn't mind seeing these programs play Ohio State either. But perennially, who can we pretty much count on to be a mainstay at the top? We can count on Alabama. We've been able to do that for over a decade, and that's not changing. So you give me Alabama versus Ohio State every year, I'd be really happy about that. And hey, I'm kind of happy already with the way that home and home and just out of conference schedules in general have been shaping up over the next decade. You know, if we can get through all this and we get back to normalcy, the college football schedule has changed forever. Now, it had already changed in the future because, as has been noted, most people expect the playoff, begrudgingly, I have to accept it too, to move to eight teams. There, at the very least, is expected to be playoff expansion, and a lot of people have beefed up their out of conference resumes in the future accordingly. Well, now you've had the whole COVID situation where a conference like the SEC is experimenting with a 10-game conference-only schedule this year. And as soon as that schedule was announced the other night, what did you hear? You heard a lot of people saying, wow, this looks great. From a fan's perspective, from a ticket buyer perspective, from a TV perspective, from a viewer's perspective, this is great. It's a win, 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 win. And that's true as long as you understand how to properly interpret that strength of schedule at the end. And the fact that you could have a 7-3 and three team come from the SEC be better than an undefeated from certain G5s. Like, if you can understand that, then I'm all on board with playing these full 10-game conference schedules. The reason why people have been so hesitant in the past is obvious. If you're in an extremely deep conference, and at the end of the year, everyone's just worried about what people's records are, well, your natural concern is well, we're going to play a whole bunch of real tough teams and a lot of our programs are probably going to have one, two, maybe three losses and those are not going to be properly interpreted when looking at schools who had a much easier road and went undefeated or had one loss. And so why would we voluntarily eliminate ourselves 
from postseason conversations when we don't have to. Well, in the future, if you have an expanded playoff, then those concerns are somewhat alleviated. Now, I don't think that's the answer to alleviating the concern. I just think that having the stones to tell someone who's undefeated in the G5, you're not as good as certain two-loss Power 5 teams, that's the answer. But not a lot of people in the room at the end of the year want to do that. And so it looks like the playoff expansion model, that's what we're going to have to have in order for what the SEC is doing this year to become normal, expanding that conference slate per year. I don't have to like it, but I will have to live with it. And live with it, I will. Moving on. Irish Politico is back. Quinn Ewers to Texas is obviously massive, says Irish Politico. Do you think we're looking at a potential Big 12 revival with Quinn Ewers versus Caleb Williams like we once saw with Colt McCoy and Sam Bradford? Who is Quinn Ewers? A lot of you may not know that name yet. Trust me, you will. Quinn Ewers is the number one quarterback in the country for the 2022 recruiting cycle. He committed to Texas last week, I want to say it was. And so the Horns are sitting there with, hopefully, quarterback answered for the foreseeable future. Caleb Williams is the number one quarterback in the 2021 recruiting cycle. He is committed to Oklahoma, doing a good job recruiting for Oklahoma, actually. If you haven't ever heard of the Sooner Summit, Google that term. Or just search your local Oklahoma message board. Fascinating effort being put together currently. And so the thought here is you got the number one quarterback from one class. You got the number one quarterback from the next class. They're going to OU and Texas respectively. Hopefully that sets up a situation where you have elite quarterback play in the conference and both are bona fide national title contenders every year. Here was the second part of the question you asked though. Do you think we're going to see a big 12 revival, the likes of which we saw about a decade ago, a little over a decade ago, when we had Sam Bradford at Oklahoma and you had Colt McCoy at Texas. Now, I hope the answer is yes, but let me just add a little caveat there. That would be a Texas OU revival, not a Big 12 revival. Now, those two are the lifeblood of the conference, understandably so, but I want you to think about what we were seeing a decade ago. You know, do you remember, for example, the name Graham Harrell? Because that guy didn't play at Texas. He played in the state of Texas, but he played at Texas Tech. And my point there is... There was some seasoning elsewhere that added to what was so special about the conference. Does anyone remember the name Ndamukong Sue? Where did he play, Texas or OU? Well, the answer is neither. He played at a Nebraska, which was then in the Big 12. And the point is, there were good teams elsewhere back then. A little over a decade ago, there were good teams elsewhere in the Big 12. And so my answer to this question is, you can have Texas OU be good all you want to. What's happening at Texas Tech? What's happening at Oklahoma State, which is a good program right now? What does Coach Kleiman do, for example, with Kansas State? Uh, does Matt Campbell keep Iowa State rolling? That's what you need to have a Big 12 revival. You can have a Texas OU revival, and I'll still be happy with it. I'd much prefer a Texas OU revival being at the forefront of a Big 12 revival. That would be great, and it should be noted neither Texas nor Oklahoma are terrible right now. Oklahoma's been a perennial playoff contender, and Texas has not been bad. They certainly have not fulfilled expectation. But yes, uh, to answer the question, I hope that's right, and I think it could very well be right. It certainly doesn't hurt. I'll say that. It certainly doesn't hurt, which is, as usual, the most obvious statement in history when you are signing back-to-back -back classes where the number one quarterback in the nation is going to one of the two biggest schools in the conference. Next up is Go Vols, spelled G-E-A-U-X, Go Vols 12. Now, this is a good one. 
It's a little lengthy, but follow me here and think along, because this is a conversation that we've all found ourselves having over the past year in some shape, form, or fashion. Here's the question. Around the time LSU won the national championship, there was a lot of talk about the greatest team ever. The methods of comparing those teams were thrown around like candy. Some people thought 2019 LSU would wipe the floor with 01 Miami and 95 Nebraska. A lot of people acknowledge this because both the offensive revolution and the revolution in strength and conditioning programs have changed the sport fundamentally. My question is this. If you took 01 Miami and 95 Nebraska and had them play a 2019 SEC schedule, what is their record? Have things come so far that even a bad team in 2019 like Arkansas beats 95 Nebraska? Uh, Let me first put this out there. I would pick Tom Osborne's 95 Nebraska team over 2019 Arkansas. That I can say, but I understand the sentiment here. I understand the logic. Here would be a better question. What A team like Auburn, I think they were three losses last year in the regular season. So a 9-3 and three caliber team in the SEC in 2019, what would they look like against 01 Miami, which is universally regarded as the most talented college football team of all time and one of the best? teams of all time, or that 95 Nebraska team. Uh, I have always been of the opinion that I don't like these conversations because I don't like comparing teams against eras or across eras. I don't like even comparing players across eras. What I'd like to do is drop 2001 Miami 20 years later and give them about 8 to 12 months of conditioning time and access to that day's nutrition and access to that day's strength and conditioning And then I'd watch 2001 Miami still run roughshod over pretty much everyone they played, even in 2019. But if I were to just take the grab claw machine, metaphorically, that we use sometimes on this podcast, and we popped our quarter in the machine, and we we picked up 2001 Miami, and we just dropped them in 2019, I have no clue what it would look like. Really, you can remove strength and conditioning from it. Because I think the best of the best athletes in 2001 would still be conditioned fairly well to play in 2019. It's not like we're talking about World War II era players here. That's only 20 years ago or 18 years ago, really, if we're talking about last year. So I don't think it would be that. I think it would be the way that offenses have been revolutionized. That's what I wonder. Like if you're a defensive coordinator on that 01 Miami team, as much talent as you have on the field, let me take you back to 2012 or 13 kind of that era with Alabama. They had an extremely talented defense. Do you remember how they looked sometimes when offenses had started to evolve? Do you remember what Malzahn did hanging 44 points on Alabama one year in the Iron Bowl? Now, they still won the game, did Alabama, but those defenses Nick Saban had on the field, they looked anything but Nick Saban-esque. And the problem was They had a defense that was built to stop teams that were built in the early 2000s, and all of a sudden the sport was evolving, a lot in part due to Alabama. And so if that was the case, and if an Alabama team a decade after that 01 Miami team saw struggle in real time against more modernized offenses, what would a 2001 team look like if they were dropped in 2019? My answer is I think that 01 Miami defense would get shredded initially, if you put them on the field, plucked out of 2001. If you gave them time, if you gave the best athletes from 2001 time, and you gave them the right modern-day coordinator, and you let them adjust to the speed of the sport, and you let them adjust to the style of the sport, then they'd still be one of the greatest in the in the sport again. 
But no, if I were to take 95 Nebraska and just drop them here, nothing that 95 Nebraska would do in 2019 would be revolutionary. I don't know that people realize this. Part of what made Nebraska so great in 1995 is they were able to do things at a high enough level that no one else had seen a lot of it. And even if you had seen it, you weren't prepared to stop it because it was a well-oiled machine. Well, what is it that 95 Nebraska would put on the field in 2019 that would take anyone by surprise, that would be a shock to the senses? I don't think there would be a whole lot. And so then you ask yourself, okay, well, would the 95 Nebraska team out-athlete 2019 LSU? No, I don't think that would be the case either. And so as unfair as the question is, I think the answer is 2019 LSU is who I give the edge to in both of those conversations. And then I cap it with, but I don't believe in comparing teams across eras because there is an unfair advantage inherent to the more modernized version in that entire argument. You got access to stuff now they didn't have access to. All right, next up, as I pull my sheet back up here, KB Hearts, you mentioned Kentucky would be a contender in the ACC. Well, what does Stoops have to do to get them to the next level in the SEC? That's an interesting question. And for context, I never said, I'm not, I'm not saying KB suggested this, but if you just walked in the podcast now and you don't know what she's talking about, or he's talking about, to be honest with you, I don't know. Uh, someone asked, who could you take from a conference like the SEC and drop them into another conference and they could be a contender. And I picked a team like Kentucky because Kentucky is very much off the radar in the SEC title conversation every year. But yet if you were to look at them independent of the conference they're in, they invest heavily. They pay their head coach very well. They have a good roster. It's just not good enough to compete in the SEC, but it would be good enough to make some noise behind Clemson in a conference like the ACC, especially during a stretch where no one else has really gotten their act together over there. Should be FSU, but it hasn't been. Should be Miami or Virginia Tech, hasn't been. And so if I could drop Kentucky over there, I said, I think that'd make some noise. They're not beating Clemson, but that'd make some noise. Well, the question here is, keep them in the SEC. What does Mark Stoops have to do? Well, I think the first thing he has to do is he has to understand you can't be a contender every year there. He, he knows that. The model at a place like Kentucky is you circle a year. You build towards a year. This is not Alabama where you just contend every year. It's not a reload situation. Kentucky is a rebuild situation. And so if you can circle a year, let's say right now they were very young. Like Kentucky could be a good team this year, but let's pretend that they were pretty young this year. What I would do is I would circle 2022 and I would model my entire progression around getting a senior-laden veteran team talented and experienced at all the key spots, including quarterback, on the field in 2022. And that's what I do. And I would build my recruiting strategy around being able to springboard off that 2022 season in the post. In the pre, I would build my recruiting strategy towards selling that as my vision. And I'd say, this is what we're working towards. And we really think we're going to be special in a couple of years. And basically what that tells kids subconsciously is, this coach thinks that he'll be really good if he gets players like me in there. And then in the post, if the good seasons happen, then if I'm a player, if I'm a recruit, I'm thinking, hmm, what he's telling me is 
they're a lot better than what the perception of them has been historically. It's just that people aren't used to it because they only just started winning. So let me go in there and I can still be at the forefront of this. That's how you have to do it at Kentucky. And then slowly, it's one of those kind of old school brick by brick metaphors. You count on you making very few mistakes. You have to run things at a very low margin for error rate, but you count on yourself being kind of like Michigan State was under Mark D'Antonio when they were figuring out ways to beat Ohio State. You make sure that you're not doing anything wrong, and then you hope the other guys do slip up. And someone is inevitably going to slip up. Dan Mullen's going to fall below expectation at Florida, or Kirby Smart's going to have some big-time injuries happen at Georgia, something like that. Maybe it doesn't work out for Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee, and you got all this smoke and debris cloud at the top of the division, and who's there to emerge at the end? It could be Kentucky. If you're taking care of your business out of the spotlight, it could be Kentucky. That's the mentality you have to have there. If you go in there saying we're about to go heads up with Georgia and Alabama every year, you're going to be a greasy spot. You're going to be street pizza. You can't do it that way. You got to do it the way that I just said. And it can be done. And you also have the safety net of knowing if you are the head coach of Kentucky, in this case, Mark Stoops, you know, hmm, it'd be nice to win 10 games here, but I can win eight and they'll be happy. So he doesn't deal with the kind of pressure that you may deal with at those other programs. So that's always nice to know. Longtime contributor to the show, Cat Train, has returned. Welcome back, CT. And Cat Train asks, Am I the only one that thinks 25% capacity is just fine? Most of these stadiums are massive. I think you could easily fit 20,000 fans in there and not have many of them anywhere close to one another, but yet some people are calling these moves greedy and dangerous. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I agree with you in theory, if all that was going on was you were just placing people in a big stadium and you only had one out of five seats full, sure, you could put proper distance between people. And I think this is the right move, by the way. If you're going to have a season, if it is safe enough to have a season, it's safe enough to put 20% capacity in those stadiums. But the question is, can you possibly police or limit physical interaction between fans in your stadium, much less outside your stadium? The answer is no, of course. So you're going to have to go into this with some inherent risk. But then again, very few activities that we partake in in life are zero risk activities. In the weather community, the meteorological community, there are zero precipitation days. There are zero percent days. And then there are non-zero days. When you look at your weather app, and it has a little sunny icon next to Friday, but yet it also says 10% chance, that's basically a meteorologist saying, hey, it's not going to rain tomorrow. I would bet a lot of money it's not going to rain tomorrow. However, the models do say that there's this ever, ever, ever so slight chance of rain. So technically, it's a non-zero threat, which means the percentage of rain is not zero, but it's like 3% or 4%, and we can't put a 4% chance of rain on the app because... That's not divisible by 10. It wouldn't look good. So we're going to put 10% chance, but go ahead and schedule your barbecue out in the park. Well, with this and with a lot of things, the threat is certainly non-zero. But is the threat acceptable? Is the threat level? Is the risk acceptable enough? And I think for a lot of folks, the answer is yes. And then here's my follow-up question. My follow-up is not what are things going to look like in week one if we get there, which is latter September. Let's fast forward a month and a half. It's now early to mid-November. Are we still at 20%? Or have things maybe improved to where administrators feel comfortable saying, let's go half capacity 
by the end of the year. If we get to conference championship Saturday in uh, mid-December, what do those stadiums look like? Are we 75% capacity? Who knows what happens? Uh, anyone's guess, and I'm open to all comers when it comes to guessing with that. Remember, again, drop us those five-star reviews. If you missed the front of the show, I would question how, because this is not a live radio show. You have to have listened to the beginning in order to get to the middle. But if you've forgotten, let me remind you, we are sitting just shy of 500 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you get us to 500, and when you get us to 500, we're taking Late Kick Live to three nights per week, and we are also going to add a second edition a part two per week, if you will, of this very episode, the Late Kick Extra podcast. So it is up to you. I await your decision. Next up is AJ. AJ asks, what are some schools quietly setting themselves up for success in the future? AJ, I'm going way, way, way off the beaten path here. It's a program that's been in the news for all the wrong reasons, namely because the SEC essentially gave them an NFL schedule, and that is Arkansas. Arkansas is several years away from being competitive in any shape, form, or fashion in the SEC. But you're talking about success, and I, I measure success relative to what is normal for your program. So Arkansas has not been a perennial contender really at any point in the SEC. Now, they had a very good brief run under, most recently, Bobby Petrino, believe it or not, but this has not been a program historically in this conference that's been on par with Alabama, LSU, even Auburn. So what would be success relative to their norm, and how long would it take to get there? The reason that I'm picking Arkansas is because of the coaching staff they've put together. Sam Pittman is the head coach there, a monster recruiter. So I think that they will be able to recruit the portions of Texas that they need to be able to recruit good enough. And then the other parts of the coaching staff that he put together, his offensive coordinator is Kendall Bryles, which falls right in line with the style you need to play at Arkansas, in my opinion, to win. And his defensive coordinator is Barry Odom, who was the head coach at Missouri about five minutes ago. He put together a dynamite coaching staff there. And this is a coaching staff that a lot of folks expect to be able to overdevelop talent. And if you up the talent level via the recruiting game, it may not be 2021, and it may not be 2022, but AJ asked, who set themselves up for long-term success in the future? I think the answer, one of them at least, is Arkansas. And that's a good question. We can dive into that a little bit further, maybe even on an episode of Late Kick Live in the future. But I quietly like what Arkansas has done, and no one's going to pay attention to it because they are going to be bad this year, record-wise. And they would be bad even if they played a moderate schedule this year. It's a long way to go there, but I do like what they've done. David is next up. A few months ago, there were a record number of verbal commitments made by recruits to schools in comparison to other cycles. It was talked about on your show and other shows like Barton and Bud that there will most likely be a wave of decommitments as well. Well, now we're in the month of August and we haven't seen that surge of decommitments. Has that belief changed or am I a little too early to the party and the wave may be coming later? If so, why? This is a really good question, David. So I was wholeheartedly on board with that notion, and I still am. And the notion was this. We were tracking how many verbal commitments we had. Remember, COVID and quarantine season had just begun, and everyone was at home, and no one could go to camps, and no one on coaching staffs could go out and do their normal spring evaluations. And there was this panic adjustment move in the recruiting world, and a whole lot of kids started verbally committing. 
and we were tracking it. And it was two to three times as many verbal commitments as you normally would have during that time of year, during a recruiting cycle. And so it was only thought natural to expect a wave of decommitments. Because a lot of kids not only had verbally committed way early, they had verbally committed to programs they had not visited. They had never been on campus in many cases, high-profile cases. And so now you're asking, what's August? Where are all the decommitments? I think they're still coming. What has happened is we haven't had much change. And what I mean is the expectation that there are going to be decommitments is really founded in two areas. Number one, coaches, once you can get back out on the road and once you can scout more thoroughly, you're going to up your evaluation level of kids and you're going to refine your evaluation. And you're going to find you've got some kids committed who really you don't think belong on your roster. You just weren't able to fully evaluate them and you put out a bunch of offers and some kids took you up on them. But in retrospect, we probably don't want to take this kid. And so you may have some guys that have it suggested to them ever so gently look elsewhere. And secondly, you may just have a bunch of kids who would finally get on a campus and they go to a visit to LSU and they're committed to South Carolina or whatever. And they say, uh, I like it here better or vice versa, maybe. And that could happen in mass. And I think it will happen in mass if you have on-campus visits this fall. Now, here's the question. What happens if you don't? What happens if status quo doesn't change? That, David, is what could make this wave of expected decommitments never come. That would be a mess. That would also probably lead to a disproportionate amount of transfers in the next two years because you would then have kids who went through and signed to a school that eh, they really probably wouldn't have signed with had the cycle been normal. And then they think about it a little bit more once they're on campus and then they want to transfer a year in or two years in. There is a wave of either decommitments or early career transfers coming. I feel confident saying that, which it will be depends on how loose we're able to get in the fall with visits and whatnot. All right, let's take a quick ad break. When we come back, Stephen has a really good question about the Power Five potentially shrinking into the Power Four. How could that happen? Could it be in the very near future? We'll talk about it right after this. Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
All right, we bring it back here with Stephen. This is a good question, and this is one that requires a lot of thought. So you need to help me out, in other words. The Big Ten can stand the hit of missing a season, says Stephen. It's already a strong conference. It has more legacy programs than the Pac-12, which is already lagging behind other Power Fives, with the California schools in particular having trouble keeping their top in-state talent. Could 2020 be the start of a conference-wide regression of the Pac-12 that leads to them no longer being considered on par with the other four? Stephen, the answer is yes. This is a definite concern. It's a definite possibility. Might I suggest to you, and I am going to, because there's no one here to stop me, unfortunately, it was already happening. It was already happening. I mean, really, if we were to go in this year and you had never heard of COVID-19 and we were to just have the season, what would you have thought about the Pac-12? We still would have referred to it as a Power Five, no doubt. And we may even look at programs like Oregon and say, that's a dark horse playoff contender. We may have looked at a program like USC and said, that roster's insanely talented. They warrant top 15 consideration preseason. Yeah, we would have said that. But would you have looked at the conference and said, hey, that's a, that's a legitimate conference. They're right on par with the Big Ten. I mean, they belong in the same conversation as the SEC. No, you wouldn't say that. Now, I think a lot of Pac-12 folks rightfully are screaming right now, okay, yeah, maybe we're nothing to write home about, has anyone watched the ACC outside of Clemson lately? I get it. Oh, trust me, I'm over here on this side of the country. So I fully get the validity of that counter argument. The difference there is there's this one bona fide national title team every year in Clemson that masks a lot of the inferiority of the rest of the conference. And then here's part B. Part B is there are a bunch of programs, well, maybe not a bunch, there are a few programs there that people have seen be nationally elite before, Miami, Florida State, even Virginia Tech. And so people think, okay, eventually they'll get right again. Whereas they look in the Pac-12 and they don't believe that, even about the likes of USC, and USC has been historically more than some of the aforementioned programs, but the difference is I think that people look at the Pac-12 and say that conference in the future because of all the mismanagement and all the internal issues and financial troubles and potentially perils. Now, they are not putting their programs in a position to succeed. They are going to be disadvantaged relative to other conferences and other teams. And so if you compound that now with missing a season, yes, David, I think, or Stephen rather, sorry. Yes, Stephen, I think this is a very legitimate concern. Very legitimate concern. And it's never going to be official, by the way. It's never going to be that you wake up one morning and someone makes an announcement, hear ye, hear ye, we will henceforth no longer be referring to the Pac-12 as a Power Five. It'll be public perception. And you'll decide that. And I'll decide that. And we'll all decide that. But yes, it's not only a concern externally, it's a big time concern for them internally. Marianne is next up. Marianne asks, what do you think about this scenario? Fall football is played. No spring football is played. What happens fall of 2021 for the Pac-12 and Big Ten in terms of giving all players another year of eligibility while adding 25 new signees per team? We're talking scholarships here. This is a good question. And this is happening. While the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 only have 25 recruits coming in, how do you deal with the increased number of scholarships that the Pac-12 and Big 10 would no doubt demand? Will the NCAA allow them to have that advantage 
while the three conferences that took the chance and had the courage to play are disadvantaged. That may have sounded com- that may have sounded jumbled up. Not her fault, my fault. Here's what she's asking. And this is one of the many, many questions that are at the forefront right now. If three conferences play football in the fall, and then the other two don't play in the fall, and they push it ahead to the spring, and then they, they probably, let's say they don't get it off the ground in the spring. Here's what's going to happen. What happens is the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are rightfully telling players who can't play this year, we're going to extend your eligibility. It's not fair that you're having to miss a season for things beyond your control, so we're going to let you stay eligible for an extra year. But then the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are also going to have signing classes in December and February, and so they're going to add 25 new names to their roster, which pushes them well over the current scholarship limit of 85. Because you got a bunch of kids not leaving, but you still have new kids coming in the door. So what is thought to be the case is it is thought the Big Ten of the Pac-12 would petition the NCAA to allow them to expand their scholarship limits to 110, like the old days. Well, here's the problem. The problem is, if this were to happen, the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 would look out across the landscape and say, hold on a second, you're telling us that we took the opportunity and the chance and had the courage to play a season, and in this scenario, it played out. So so they would be saying by this point, wait a second, we took the courage and we played a season and successfully got it in, which means they could have too if they wanted to, and they didn't, and you're giving them a 110 scholarship cap and we got to stay at 85. Oh, and by the way, some of our teams are going to play each other. Like, I think Auburn and Penn State are supposed to play each other next year. You think Gus Malzahn's going to sit there with 85 scholarships and play against James Franklin with 110 and think it's even and think it's fair? I don't. So, Marianne, yeah, you're right. She, she said, my husband and I have been discussing this. Well, add me to the mix because I don't get how it's going to work either. Because you're right. That is an obvious disadvantage. And I don't think a lot of folks are going to want to go for it. Next up is Jack. If Mario Cristobal can win a national championship at Oregon, do you think he will still leave for potentially an SEC opportunity like Alabama? If he can win, he has a very similar setup to what Clemson has in the ACC. Very little competition, fully bought-in program. He also has the backing of Nike, which is huge. I think the state that the school he's going to would make a huge difference. Following a legend like Saban would be incredibly difficult, but so is following someone like Butch Jones, but in a completely different manner. That's a, that's a good point. What reason would he have to leave other than recruiting, even though he's proving he can get it done in Eugene? He's not quite at the same level as Alabama and Georgia in that world. Well, other than recruiting is a pretty big mouthful to say there, Jack. So let's break this down. Now, I don't have any inside information that Mario Cristobal is going anywhere, so So let me put that out there at the forefront. I've always viewed Mario Cristobal as a prime candidate if the timing were right, if Nick Saban were to exit Alabama four years from now. And Mario Cristobal, let's just say he's won a national championship at Oregon. I think it'd be a golden opportunity. I have thought Cristobal would be the prime candidate for Alabama for two years now. I have thought that the Dabo conversation has been overblown, and I think that Mario Cristobal has been a name that's not at the forefront enough. I tell you this, if Jeremy Pruitt were to win the SEC at Tennessee, Jeremy Pruitt would be a guy that Alabama looked at very closely for obvious reasons. He is an Alabama guy. So with Mario Cristobal, let's break this down. 
doing it at Oregon one time would be one thing. Doing it perennially, perennially there would be a different thing. And I'm not saying you can't do it there. I'm saying the challenges are far more unique and different there than at Alabama, where you know if you don't screw it up, you're going to be there every year because you have much more ready access to talent. Just geographically, you're closer to it. At Oregon, you have to go to where Alabama already is to get a bunch of talent. Secondly, and this is where I want to hone in on it, there is this misconception that a lot of elite competitors think about the sport the same way that normal people do. Normal people, I've heard this, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times, they look at Alabama and they say, no one's going to want to follow in the footsteps of Saban. Well, that's not entirely true. A normal person wouldn't want to. But the way an alpha competitor thinks, and by the default of the position, that's what you have to have anyway. So the pool that you're selecting from is very small. That pool of alpha competitors, they don't look at Alabama post-Saban and say, ooh, that's not something I want to do because I'll never live up to that. They don't think like that. Alpha competitors look at that and say, I think I'm as good as him. You may not agree with that, but Mario Cristobal and people like that, they look at it internally and say, I'm as good as anyone to ever do it. And if I'm given that kind of opportunity, I'm taking it and I'm going to create a legacy for myself. And that's how I believe guys like him think. Now, what we cannot know with any coach is what the exact set of circumstances will be until the situation arises. For all we know, Alabama in three years could come open, but there could be internal issues there that make it less attractive a job behind the scenes, and Oregon could have a Heisman-winning quarterback coming back the next year. Who knows what the situations would be? But in general, no, I do not think that winning a title at Oregon would just cement Mario Cristobal in place. I always have thought it would be tough to get him out of there. But as is the case with Mario Cristobal, as is the case with a guy like Urban Meyer, as has been the case with a guy like Nick Saban in his career, never say never. That's my only piece of advice there. Just never say never on those sorts of things. Jay Hose is next up. Which of the big three Florida jobs is most desirable right now? The answer to this is Florida. It's pretty easy to me. That SEC sticker on your helmet matters a lot. The revenue sharing model there, it matters a lot. The affiliation with being in the best conference in America, it matters a lot. You have the same access to talent as do Miami and as do Florida State. So you don't have a disadvantage there. You've got great tradition. You are currently undergoing facility upgrades. So you're about to be near the front of the pack again in that area. There is no disadvantage to being at Florida. You could argue some disadvantages relative to Florida being at the other two. So my answer there is Florida. Riley, next up. Going off some of the conference realignment questions from this week, would Texas A&M have been better off staying in the Big 12 and having an easier road to the college football playoff like Oklahoma? And could have the Manziel teams played for a national championship from the Big 12 instead of going through the SEC? I do believe that those Manziel teams would have challenged for a seat at the national championship table if they were in the Big 12. I do believe that. Those teams were really, really good. Uh, they were stacked, not just at quarterback. You had guys like Ryan Swope, who would have been all Big 12. You had uh, guys like, for instance, think about Mike Evans, who's just a total freak of nature. They had insane offensive lines, by the way. 
they were loaded up with guys that would go on to be high draft picks in the NFL. So they had good players outside of Manziel. Yeah, they would have been really good in the Big 12. However, zooming out and answering the totality of this question, no. No, the Big, the, 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 the Big 12 would not have been the better place for A&M. Think about all the advantages, again, are, that are baked into being in the SEC. You can talk about how much more challenging it is, but I go right back to what I just said about Cristobal in Oregon. People like Jimbo Fisher do not look at that as a detriment. They look at it as an opportunity. So an administrator just looks and says, look at how big this paycheck is we're cashing from the SEC. Look at how much more our brand is valued because it's associated with the SEC. But that's business and legalese. If you're a fan, you care about winning. But even in that sense, think about what being in the SEC West does to the collective resolve and fire about your fan base and your program and the all-in nature that you have to have. I think it is very valuable. I think it's worth its weight in gold. And I cannot tell you that if A&M were still in the Big 12, for example, I can't tell you that they would have been as resolved to make a move on Kevin Sumlin. Because Kevin Sumlin would have probably done just enough in the Big 12 to stay in place. Whereas the SEC went far enough in exposing him that they were forced to make a move and bring in Jimbo Fisher. Can you guarantee me that that move would have been made if, let's say, A&M were in the Big 12 and winning nine and a half games a year or 10 games a year instead of eight and a half games a year or eight a year? I can't tell you that. So that alone, I think, makes my argument. But the other part is I do not view the increase in challenge and difficulty of your season schedule as a detriment. I don't. It's... You know, LSU plays that schedule. LSU just won a national championship. Why was LSU able to win a national title last year? Because they rose to the occasion. The SEC West forced them to make moves, forced them to recruit better, forced them to be all-in, which they weren't. They weren't totally all-in once upon a time not too long ago. But now they are, and they've just reaped the benefits. Who's to say a and not the next team? to tell a story like that, and who's to say that as the confetti's raining down on you two or three years from now, who's to say that you're not looking and saying, you know what, as hard as this road was, I'm not sure we ever would have had what it took to make it this far had we not been battle-tested and hardened in the best division and the best conference in America. Next up is Dan. What are your thoughts on Mel Tucker and his future at Michigan State? I'm not aware of how fans perceived him during his tenure as a coordinator at Georgia, but I'm currently hearing a lot of optimism from Sparty fans, and I want to know where you think Michigan State stands in the Big Ten East. Well, I don't expect him to challenge this year for obvious reasons, so sarcasm aside, here's the baseline question that I have anytime there's a new head coach. The baseline question is, what is the identity of this program going to be? And to this point, I'm not sure I know what that answer is at Michigan State. Now, here's what I think about Michigan State. I think you can either have one of two expectation levels. You can either expect and hope to be a nice, solid program that is a New Year's Day bowl contender. So if you have in your in your crosshairs a trip to the Citrus Bowl, an opportunity to play in the Capital One Bowl, or whatever those New Year's Day Florida Bowls are called, the, the Outback Bowl in Tampa, like if that's your Super Bowl, if that's your goal, then that's one thing. 
But if your mindset is, we want to contend in the Big Ten, then I think Mel Tucker's teams have to be a special preparation. They have to be unique. They cannot go about it implementing the Ohio State playbook or even the Michigan playbook because I think they're disadvantaged relative to those two programs. And if all things are equal, I don't think they're out Ohio State in Ohio State. And so my point is, back to the identity question, what is Mel Tucker going to do at Michigan State that's different than what other folks in the Big Ten are doing, regardless of whatever else they're doing. What is he going to do that's different and unique? To this point, forget about him as a coordinator. We're talking about him as a head coach. To this point, I don't know that he's done anything really all that unique in his admittedly brief tenure as a head coach. I don't think there's a lot to go on with what he did at Colorado. I don't think there's a lot. There's enough to discern, uh, shall I say, as to what his identity at Michigan State is going to be and his identity as a head coach long-term. I'm very undecided on Mel Tucker. I think there was a bidding war that happened there that Michigan State won just because they can. And I don't necessarily know that his current salary is in line with what you would expect from a guy who is paid that much. I'm all for Mel Tucker getting as much money as he can. Don't get me wrong. I have no problem with that. And I have no problem with Michigan State going and getting who they wanted to because they could. That's how you flex on people. That's how you open the checkbook and you flex on people and you show that you're committed. Whether he is a guy who can get the Spartans into contention annually in the Big Ten, I'm in the remains-to-be-seen camp there. All right, Dan is going to wrap us up here. Why are so many current head coaches in the Southeastern Conference and elsewhere hired without any head coaching experience? It's a big trend with successful programs, but I don't know the logic behind this. What say you? Dan, I think the sport has changed so much. Uh, This has also happened in administrative positions. In the athletic director position, which you didn't ask about, but I'm going to tie it in and correlate it, it used to be, if you were going to be an athletic director, you had to have a discernible background in the world of sports, obviously. It was very preferred that you were a former head coach, that you have led players, that you have led people, that you have led teams before, that you've been in locker rooms, that you understand the fabric and the intricacy of competition, team sports, individual sports. You have been immersed in it for a long time. Today, if you're a great fundraiser, you rock it right up to the top of athletic departments, and sometimes you're put in charge of them. Why? Because the thought is the athletic department can run itself. The individual coaches can run the teams. And administratively, we can handle that. If we have a rock star fundraiser that is at the forefront, that's what's most important. Money is what makes this athletic department run, not great leadership. We'll have great leadership at the head coaching positions And the president, if need be, can step in when there are squabbles. We need an AD that's really good at fundraising. So that's changed in recent history. At the head coaching position, I think that the the emphasis and the premium that has been placed on representation and recruiting has changed a lot of the dynamic that goes into hiring a head coach. The thought there is this. It used to be when you were a head coach, you spent a whole lot more time on football than you do today. I was interviewing Brian Kelly a few months ago, who is the head coach at Notre Dame, one of the most high-profile head coaching jobs in America. And it was a Tuesday morning, I think, and it was about 9 a.m., and he was hanging out at his desk, and I asked him, I think I told this story recently, I said, what else do you have to do today? And he held up a list, as I told you in that story recently. And it was just a list of all the stuff he had to do that day, and none of it had anything to do with football. It was all administrative. And so that was an entire day of Brian Kelly's week 
that was going to be devoted to something other than football. And that is how, how thin a head coach is spread these days. He is much more the face and the representative of your program. He is much more directly interacting with people who are important to your program. And he is much more an ambassador than he would have been 30 years ago. 30 years ago, you just need to go win football games. That's what's important. And so the thought is, if we can get a rock star head coach in here who can represent us, who can be the face of this brand, and then he hires the right people and delegates the more football-centric roles, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, there's also a reason, make no mistake, why programs like Alabama have an army of support roles and administrative roles and grad assistants. It's because you are slowly, as the head coach, even an experienced one like Nick Saban, is slowly having to filter down and plinko his way down, with responsibilities at least, things that he used to be able to do that you no longer can do because of how thin you're stretched as a head coach. Well, if you're hiring, you can build your athletic department and your football program like that. And you can have all the football roles delegated and you could bring in a guy and you can say, wait a second, we don't need for him to have run an offense for 20 years. We don't need for him to have been a head coach at five different stops. We need him to be able to lead people. We need him to be able to represent and be the face of our program. And if he's young and energetic, that's all the better. We also need him to be a great recruiter, and we need him to cast the vision for us. We'll hire the right football people to run the defense, to run the offense. But when Oklahoma hired Lincoln Riley, now make no mistake, that's a great football mind. When Georgia hired Kirby Smart, make no mistake, that's a great football mind. Those guys, it was not required for them to spend 20 years in the MAC and the Mountain West cutting their teeth before they finally got a shot at a big boy job. All due respect to the MAC and Mountain West. These days, the dynamic has just changed. And I'll tell you one other thing. It was told to me a couple of years ago by a coach. What prepares coaches to be in big-time roles is repetition and experience, obviously. Now, what the digital age has done is the digital age has allowed a coach to expose himself. At, at, the, at the time he's 30 years old, he could have exposed himself to tens of thousands of repetitions more just from film study than he would have being a 30-year-old in 1975. In 1975, there was only one way to study film, and that was the old, old-fashioned way. These days, if I'm 30 years old and I'm a wide receiver coach, I could tell my grad assistant, when I get into this office Monday morning, I want you to go get every third down play between six and nine yards to go that Penn State has run in the past 10 years, and I want to watch what their slot receivers have done on those plays. And that grad assistant could have that done before lunch. You could never do that back in the day. And the point is, you are able to expose yourself to so much more thanks to technology and the digitization of the modern age than you ever would have been back then. And maybe that goes a long way, cumulatively, of preparing your mind for what it used to take 20 years of old-school, hardcore, game-to-game experience to prepare your mind for. Just something to think about there. All right, reminder one more time as we head out the door here. We are headed to 500 five-star reviews, and when we get there, we are adding a third Late Kick Live per week, and we are adding a second Late Kick Extra per week. This would have been Part A, and Part B would be coming up later in the week. So 
500 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's what we are looking for. And when we get there, you will be handsomely rewarded. Unless, of course, you consider more of me a punishment instead of a reward. In which case, um, just don't take away your five-star review. How about that? All right. So until next time, I really appreciate you guys listening. It's a busy week. Make sure you join us on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel for Late Kick Live Thursday night this week, 8 Eastern. 7 Central. See you there. Have a great and safe rest of the week and God bless. From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles. Now streaming only on Paramount+. Plus. Yes!